It says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image to be like us. Let them be stewards of the fish in the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, the wild animals, and everything that crawls on the ground. Humankind was created in God's reflection. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God made them. God blessed them and said, bear fruit, increase your numbers and fill the earth and be responsible for it. Watch over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things on the earth. And then moving to chapter two. So Yahweh fashioned an earth creature out of the clay of the earth and blew into its nostrils the breath of life, and the earth creature became a living being. Then Yahweh said, It is not good for the earth creature to be alone. I will make a fitting companion for it. So from the soil, Yahweh formed all the various wild beasts and all the birds of the air and brought them to the earth creature to be named. Whatever the earth creature called each one, that became its name. The earth creature gave names to all the cattle, all the birds of the air, and all the wild animals. But none of them proved to be a fitting companion. So Yahweh made the earth creature fall into a deep sleep. And while it slept, God divided the earth creature in two, then closed up the flesh from its side. Yahweh then fashioned the two halves into male and female and presented them to one another. When the male realized what had happened, he exclaimed, This time, this is the one, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now she will be woman and I will be man because we are of one flesh. We hear the voice of God in these words. Thanks be to God. Okay, so I'm guessing that most of you haven't heard that translation before. This is a newer biblical translation. It's maybe 10 or 15 years old. But I wanted to read something different this morning. I wanted to read something thoughtful and creative and possibly new to our ears because this is the kind of posture we need to enter into these conversations when we're looking at these ancient stories. Every time we approach the Bible, there's an intersection of worlds. There's the world of the text itself, the world of the author, so the context in which it was written, and then there's our world today combined with our own personal realities. And all of this we bring to the table whenever we engage the Bible. And so we have a responsibility with how we read it and how we interpret it. Interpret it. This is really, really important. It's so important that we've preached on it a lot. I've preached on it several times, and I, I think it's worthwhile to go back and check out those sermons, so I've linked to them in the guide. I've also linked to all of the sermon resources if you want to see things that I've cited in the guide, including Fran's coffee from this week, which I think is really helpful to this conversation when we're talking about creation and our treatment of the earth. Please go back and listen to that if you haven't. Um, but the way that we approach the Bible is relevant today to this conversation because we're in a First Testament series. And <clears throat> in my decade of preaching, I have noticed that a lot of people have discomfort with this portion of the Bible, what we've called the Old Testament, what we're choosing to call the First Testament. Now, 
But for one, in the midst of deconstructing and rebuilding and reclaiming, these ancient stories don't always make it to the top of our priority lists, right? When we do read them, we're constantly confronting problematic things about ourselves, about the human nature, and about God. And there's a lot of work to be done in merging all of the worlds I was talking about and making the First Testament accessible to our modern lens. But I want to share something with you that has been helpful to me when I engage it and really all of the Bible. It has helped me to remember that systematic theology is a human-made construct. The Bible itself does not include a systematic theology, but rather it has been placed onto the text. And we are invited and challenged to read the Bible with this in mind, understanding and acknowledging that how we interpret it is a direct result of somebody's systematic theology. What we have believed about the Bible is a direct result of the Christian culture that has influenced us. So, the exciting thing about this series is that we are coming to these ancient stories with a fresh lens, and I like to start at the very beginning. The creation story. It's not just our introduction to the Bible, but it's also the entry point to our faith paradigm. Because how we begin determines how we proceed. How we read these first chapters is going to shape how we look at all the rest of them. It's going to inform how we understand Christ. It's going to play a foundational role in shaping our belief systems. And what we believe directly affects how we live and move in the world. I'm guessing that most of us inherited a very certain way to interpret these first chapters of Genesis. And if you zoom out a bit and you look at all the first 11 chapters in Genesis, which include creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the the first genealogy of the humans and Noah and the flood, all these stories can be bundled together in one section that scholars call primeval history. Meaning, they simply tell history before there was actually history. These are all ideological stories that are used to explain why things are the way they are. They all involve action and consequence. They all have multiple stories, ancient stories outside of our tradition that are similar. Whether they're other creation stories or other flood stories, those exist. Meaning, these stories in our sacred book are not actually unique. Now, here's where an older version of me would have been totally freaked out and probably stopped listening to whoever that woman preacher was because the interpretation I inherited told me that these stories literally happened and I needed this to be true. I needed the whole Bible to be historically accurate I needed everything to make sense and to line up just right in order for my faith in Jesus to remain intact. And gosh, I'm just really grateful that I don't need all those things anymore. I'm not so high maintenance anymore. I don't need the Bible to be a history book 
or a science book when it's not. I only need it to be what it is, a book about God and us, a book that tells our sacred story, a book that after all the authors and edits and translations still manages to somehow offer divine truth that speaks deeply into our lives. What I'm trying to say is this, I don't need the Bible to be true for it to be true. I say all this as a preface because this is the kind of lens I'm using when I look at the first chapters in Genesis. It's how I understand the story of Adam and Eve in the scheme of my own faith journey. And I'm sure to many people, this way of looking at it might seem like a cop-out as if it lets us off the hook somehow. This is what I would have thought 15 years ago. But I think any of us who have deconstructed for any length of time know that this is not the case. We know that giving up our certainty is hard. Giving it up is difficult because certainty has been absolutely latched onto the constructs of our faith, right? And deconstruction is the work of disentangling those two things from one another. And we have to be really gentle with this process, tending to it with great love and care so that our faith is preserved and can be nourished and grow in new ways. And a lot of you already understand this because you've already experienced it, right? You know what it feels like to suddenly inherit the weight of your own faith work. You know how heavy that can feel, how overwhelming it can be. You already know how much responsibility is involved in being free. But I'm hoping you also know how beautiful freedom is. I'm hoping you recognize the beauty because we can see this same beauty written all over these sacred stories. We see it today as we zoom in specifically on the first two chapters of Genesis. Each of these chapters is a creation account, not one story, but two different stories. And each chapter tells the story a bit differently. Chapter one, if you look at it, is more distant and powerful. God is Elohim and the moment of creation is orderly. In chapter two, it's much more personal, less orderly, more messy. The name Yahweh is used for the first time in chapter two, looking specifically at the creation of humankind. In chapter one, they're created at the same time. In chapter two, they're not. There are more details and complexities. But either way, in our Christian tradition, these creation stories are responsible for at least two dominant narratives that have spanned the course of history. One, the dominion of people over the land, and two, the dominion of man over woman. These interpretations have propped up colonialism, the mistreatment of the earth, and the justification of patriarchy in ways that are well beyond the scope of this tiny little 15 to 20 minute sermon. But I will say this, if we are going to change our systems that are rooted in the creation stories based on Genesis 1 and 2, we've got to begin by personally unlearning these harmful interpretations within ourselves. I'm calling this the great unlearning because dismantling the hierarchical ways of operating we've been taught 
including the violent dominion over the earth and patriarchal dominion over others, will cause a domino effect in which our whole faith paradigm changes and where we are deeply changed and transformed as individuals. If we can change at our core, then we can normalize this change in our homes and in our churches and our societies. This is systemic change. We need the great unlearning to collectively wake us up to the truth, the sacred truth of oneness. Our creation stories tell us that we were made from the earth. And they also tell us that we were made in God's image. This tells me that all creation, including the earth itself, is part of the image of God. We're all connected, meaning the way we treat the earth is a reflection of how we will treat human bodies, including our own, and the way we treat human bodies is related to our treatment of the earth. Waking up to this sacred connection is important because our earth is in turmoil. It's never been more clear than now that we ravage the land and the water and that we ravage each other with all our boxes and boundaries and with every bit of harmful doctrine we perpetuate. Texts like Genesis 1 and 2 have long been used to justify mistreatment of the earth and others, even though God breathing life into us was for the sake of stewarding creation, not dominating it. Spirit was breathed into us, not to ravage, but to love, not to harm, but to help. In fact, the word most often used to describe the need for the creation of woman is helper. The story of woman's creation is one of the most blatant examples of bad theology ever for the sake of power and control. But I read half a dozen translations of the creation stories leading up to this, not including the one I use today, and all of them, all six of them, used the word helper in describing the creation of woman. And what's incredible about this is that the same use of the word helper that we see there in Genesis 2 so often is used 19 times in the First Testament. And guess what? 12 of those times it is used to describe God. God as helper. Us created in God's image. So to me, it's super clear when I remove all the ridiculous theology that's been layered on top of this narrative that God intended an equal partnership for all humankind, a partnership created in God's image and designed for the care of the earth. And yet, this origin story has long been used to say that God ordains our mistreatment of the earth. It's crazy to me that God ordains that and that God blesses the dominion of one gender over others. Yet, pastors, faith leaders, and everyday Christians spend a lot of time and energy justifying unloving, exclusionary treatment toward women, people of color, the queer community, and it all begins here. It's all rooted in these creation stories. But I believe that these same stories clearly show an intention for creation that doesn't line up with hierarchy of any kind. We see God's hope 
in these stories from Genesis 1 and 2. We witness God's naming of things and calling them good. In fact, it's not until chapter 3 when humankind eats of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when things change. Prior to this, there is the creation of feminine and masculine. But it's not until after this partaking that gender is acknowledged in a significant way where nakedness is associated with shame, where curses are doled out in the form of gender norms and roles, and where humankind are each given a binary name, Adam and Eve. It's as if when they ate this fruit, they moved from the divine and mystical space that God intended for them and into a space of certainty or dualism at the cost of the fullness of divine intimacy. So, Adam and Eve are our image of what the movement out of oneness looks like. And I think this has significant meaning for us today. I think it represents our own Imago Dei, as Joyce talked about in the kids' sermon, the way God created us, the way God intended us, in contrast with our ego tendencies, which like to cling to a dualistic way of seeing the world. In this way, the origin story becomes our origin story. And I'm suggesting that our faith practice is a great unlearning which involves stripping down, deconstructing, decolonizing, and straight up rejecting a lot of what has been ingrained in us since childhood. And the reason we do this is because we know Christ is doing it too. We know Christ is with us on this journey. Christ, as Richard Rohr called him, the first non-dual religious teacher of the West. To quote Rohr, one reason we have failed to understand so much of Christ's teaching, much less follow it, is because we've tried to understand it with dualistic minds. In his life and ministry, Jesus modeled and exemplified non-duality more than giving us any systematic teaching on it. Our inability to fully understand him and seriously follow him may be partly because we've not been taught how to see non-dually ourselves. Luckily, I think we're given some clues on how to proceed, and those clues are sprinkled all over the gospel stories as we watch the life of Jesus unfold, but I think one of those clues is John chapter 1 where it says, in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was in God's presence, and the Word was God. In the Word was life, and the life was humanity's light. In the beginning there was the Word. So I think an answer, because the answer's a little too dualistic for me, <laughs> but I think an answer is for us to go back to the beginning and begin again, one of my favorite mantras, Go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, before humankind ever ate at the fruit. Go back to that liminal, mystery-filled space where humankind was operating as intended in the fullness of Imago Dei. Now, Tiffany, Tiffany Lushber, I told her I was probably going to quote her because she said this to me this week. She said that she is realizing that big truths always come with paradox. And I was a proud pastor when she said that, y'all, because not only is this true, but this is the kind of realization, this kind of realization is the way 
of non-dualism, right? And non-dualism is the way of Christ. It's complex and confusing. It's filled with nuance and gray areas and lots of wrestling is required. And today's story, this momentary microscope on the creation of humankind is a really important starting point. We hover over this text with a new lens so that we can awaken to this great unlearning in which we unlearn dominion over the land and we unlearn dominion over others. We unlearn hierarchy, and we do this by unlearning dualistic thinking where it's helpful, and spoiler, this is always gonna include the matters of God and matters of faith and matters of love. So to wrap it up, in the midst of racial injustice in our country, which by the way, if you pay close enough attention to, you will see a light shined on the urgent need to say trans lives matter and black trans lives matter. And in the midst of a global pandemic, I can honestly say that our take on this ancient story is very, very relevant. People are dying because of binary thinking. It's a matter of life and death that we let it go. So, just let it go. Just do what it takes to unlearn this stuff. Let's do it together. Let's do it so we can teach our children something totally different so that we aren't roadblocks to the fullness of their or anyone else's Imago Dei and so that they have a better, more healed earth to steward. In the name of the word that is love, I pray this will be so. Amen.